HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ronnie Sue's Chocolates, a confectioner in New York engaged in responsible cacao sourcing from the Toledo district of Belize. Check them out at roni-sue.com. I'm Tim Gunn, author, educator, and Project Runway mentor, and you're listening to Heritage Radio. Welcome to Magnifico Radio, bringing you the latest in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. I'm your host, Kate Black, and this is Episode 7. And today I'm joined by Crystal Moody and Jess Daniels from The Fiber Shed. We've all heard about local, localization, even local vores, people who eat food that's locally produced, but not too many people are familiar with The Fiber Shed, which is a new regional movement around fashion bringing the farm to the shelf. So ladies, can you please explain a little bit more what is Fiber Shed? Sure. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Fiber Shed is a nonprofit organization. We're based out of Northern California, and we support the development of regional regenerative fiber systems. So like you were saying, from farm to shelf, we support an independent network of working producers who are on the landscape raising fiber or in a studio, natural dyeing, weaving, cut and sew. Um, and we facilitate collaborations within that network to produce educational projects, uh, prototype and economic models for creating local clothing. And we also support a growing network of international affiliates who are fiber sheds uh, building their fiber system regionally in their home community. And so obviously this isn't something that has started. This is something we've done since the dawn of time. But when did, this, when did the movement itself start? In 2010, Rebecca Burgess, who founded Fibershed, began with a personal challenge to regionalize her wardrobe. So she started with a 150-mile radius from her doorstep and looked at who was literally in her own backyard and in her fiber shed who could support her wardrobe. So for one year, I actually think it lasted just over a year, she uh, created those relationships between um, farmers who were nearby and then textile artists and designers uh, to cultivate a wardrobe. It was very small, kind of like what you might think of as a capsule wardrobe now. 
Um, and it also became this first system of modeling what a new regenerative approach to dressing yourself would be. It's true. I remember, actually, because we wrote about it on Magnifico.com back in 2010, because it was the first time that somebody was trying to make localization in the fashion movement. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about we talk about um, outsourcing. We talk about, you know, trying to reshore manufacturing. But nobody had really looked at the local systems. And so was it a challenge back then? And, and how is that? How is that? changed? I think it was definitely a challenge. I wasn't uh, part of the one-year wardrobe when it took place, but I know from reading a lot about it, because that also captured my imagination and fascination, that it was a challenge uh, in terms of material culture and what was available that you could wear next to your skin, um, what resources were available for milling fiber. That was became very apparent very quickly that that was a big obstacle from um, getting sheep's wool milled locally. There was really only one mill in the region. Um, there was leftover fabric from Sally Fox's organic cotton production when she used to have a supply chain articulated regionally. Um, that was sort of pre-NAFTA. So there were, uh, you know, various elements of the wardrobe that were possible, but it took a lot of on-the-ground orchestrating and a lot of building bridges, especially um, in the context of an urban-centered region and building the connections with the rural community, you know, taking design students who are studying knitwear at California College of the Arts out to meet the people who grow the fiber that becomes the yarn that gets knit into garments. Um, so it presented a lot of interesting challenges that have built into some of the issues we're still working on today, looking at regional fiber processing, uh, the obstacles related to scalability, um, and how to refine um, the diversity of fiber that's available and refine the type of garments that can be made. It's true. So so when Rebecca Burgess started it in 2010, she kind of, she, she created this, not only this movement, but the language and the, and the kind of the network, and then it's grown on since mm-hmm, then, right? Definitely. There's how many in North America? Did I read 50? Mm, there's uh, about 45 worldwide, Okay, um, including a few in Canada. So uh, North America is probably the majority of that, around 30, mid-30s. Okay. And so yeah. in order to be a fiber shed, does somebody need to identify their geographic speciality? Like how, how, does, one, how does a fiber shed develop? Yeah, well, so Fibershed is a nonprofit. It's also a noun, and like you were saying, it's building that um, verbal culture around it. Like a food shed or a watershed, it's a way of defining your textile resource base. So the idea is that you select a strategic geography, um, and for Rebecca's first wardrobe and what's still the Northern California kind of flagship, Fibershed, it's 150 miles from San Geronimo, which is in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. But what we've seen worldwide is when people find out about what Fibershed is doing and they want to to start working on it in their home community. They take a look at their own backyard. They look at, you know, where they're based, what resources they already know of, or where they're interested in, you know, maybe journeying out to visit. Um, and that helps set the, um, the strategic geography. And that's fascinating to me as an idea of where people see their regional identity. We have some fiber sheds uh, in the Pacific Northwest that are uh, based around kind of island communities. Um, and so... Those are very small, uh, locally contained, almost self-contained uh, explorations of the concept. And then there are some that choose a much larger, broader sphere uh, to look at building even you know, greater connections and facilitating between a larger radius. Um, that often applies more to rural areas. 
Well, and it's so fascinating to me, too, because I think if, if we look at fashion on kind of a broader context, people are a little bored. There's a lot of conversation about, you know, fast fashion has made this generic look, and there's mm-hmm. not really anything that's unique. But when you look at Fibershed and what you're, what's what's being produced and what, what's being thought about, um, because conversations I've had with Rebecca about indigo is more endemic to Northern Carol, um, California than other regions. So if, you, if you're taking a Fibershed from here in the Hudson Valley, it's not going to be blue. The clothes mm-hmm. produced aren't going to be blue. And you're going to be at a stage where maybe you can recognize somebody's you know, location or somebody's kind of where they're from by the color or by the texture of their clothing. Yeah, the design parameters that, that Fibershed provides is it, it creates such wonderful products. Um, I, I, For me, coming from the industry side, so working at uh, one of the largest apparel corporations in the world, um, seeing the the innovation that some of these producers and some of these supply chains have to think up just to to follow this this fiber shed set of values or fiber shed set of parameters. Um, We make such beautiful products that you would not see in the market today. Yeah completely unique mm-hmm. and then really kind of bringing back the craft and the heritage techniques yep. I was somebody was telling me um, the number of people who don't sew or, or, or the number of people who can't sew which is 7 out of 10 Americans can't really or millennials yeah. can't sew a button and then oh, when yeah. you think about weaving or when you think about knitting it's 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 like I feel like Fibershed has just caught it just before it's mm-hmm. like an expired or an extinguished or an endangered craft. Um, so let's get into it a little bit because now the, everybody's heard both of your voices. So Crystal, you mentioned coming from big brands. So what's your background and how did you fall into the fiber shed? Yeah. Uh, so my background, I um, was educated at UC Davis, textile science major. It's a very small major there and hopefully going to continue. <laughs> um, but have spent the last eight years pursuing sustainable textiles. And for me, that meant um, working for some of the, the largest brands in the industry. So I worked for Vans uh, Shoes and Men's Materials. Um, they're actually, a lot of people don't know this, one of the brands, um, one of the 35 brands that the VF Corporation has. Um, and not long after, moved into the North Face and uh, developed uh, performance materials for um, that brand as well. Um, and then eventually into the Apparel Innovation Center in Alameda, California. So my the focus of my career has been sustainable technologies, um, many of them with synthetic fibers and synthetic finishes. And when I encountered Fibershed in 2000, I think it was 2013, I met Rebecca and she had challenged the North Face to develop a product within 150 miles of their office in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, the VP of product pulled me aside and said, hey, you like sustainable textiles. Why don't you do this little skunk works project and see what we can come up with? Um, Two years later, we created this gorgeous um, California-grown and sewn hoodie. Um, Just based on where textiles are today, we had to to do some components of the process on the East Coast for yarn spinning and knitting. Um, We could have knitted here on the West Coast, but it made sense to to cluster that piece of the supply chain over there and brought it back to the Bay Area um, for uh, sewing uh, 
within the Oakland area. Uh, it was a really, really cool program, and to me, that was the innovation I wanted to see for the, the apparel industry. We started talking about the upcoming Climate Beneficial Wool program as well that Fibershed um, has been working on the last couple years, and, and that that was what I felt this is the direction I feel the industry needs to go in moving forward. We need to stop looking at synthetic chemistries and synthetic fibers to be our answer to our sustainable future. Um, so that's a, just a little bit about my background and how I got involved with the work. Oh my God, there's so many questions in there that I'm now like, okay, so let, but for people who haven't heard about the hoodie, let's just talk about the hoodie sure. for one second because it was such a successful program. Yep. It married like mainstream fashion. It took a big brand um, who had said that they were interested in, in the environment. And, you know, North Face is, is an outdoor apparel company who was who grounded in outdoors. Yep. And so when they took on this project and they partnered, they partnered with Fiber Shed, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. And so, and, and it sold out. And it continued, like, it was the most successful kind of local material-based project that a mainstream brand had ever done. Yeah. It was, it was amazing because being on the North Face side and just the amount of hoops we had to go through to get that program to market. I mean, when you think about a brand that is 90% synthetic today, a lot of what they're doing is overseas just based on the skill set you need for assembling the types of garments that they make. We're talking about a cotton hoodie. Um, and so just setting up an entirely new supply chain. We had a cut and sew operation, thankfully, that we had used for Sochi for the Olympics, um, and that was local. Uh, so what was great, we could leverage that, but um, just creating this entire new supply chain for this product that at the time was a small, a really small scale compared to anything else they were making because it was really about testing the waters. Um, and since then, what's great is because of the success of that program, they've been able to continue what they're calling the backyard collection and continue to expand their Made in USA products, and it's been really successful for them. It's, it's great because it also showed what the consumer was interested in, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was the first time that a mainstream brand got to see, oh, consumers actually care. I love the fact that they call it the backyard collection. Like it just, yep. because if you think about I want Made in America, Made in America is one aspect. It, it, that really talks about production right. and that talks about jobs and trying to save the jobs. But when you're when you're thinking about like the materials and what can we do and what kind of what kind of systems can we reinvigorate? Because mm -hmm. it's not just about production. There are entire systems. And so, Jess, what's your background? So my background is on the more systems side. I come from sustainable agriculture. Uh, I studied environmental studies and visual art and was really interested in sustainable ag and urban food systems specifically and looking at the food shed and uh, food justice uh, issues within that. Uh, but I've always loved textiles and uh, I've always been a crafty person. And so similarly, when I heard about what Fibershed was doing, I met Rebecca at an event where she was talking about the Indigo Project and creating locally grown fermentation indigo. And even though I had experience in the food systems world and had been looking at where food comes from and urban composting and urban education around uh, environmental systems, um, and then I'd always loved textiles and I knew how to sew and knit, I 
hadn't brought those together, hadn't merged those worlds. And so when that light bulb went off for me, that just like you can grow your food and you can understand where it comes from, you can grow your clothes and grow your dyes. And um, that was really pivotal, pivotal and powerful. So that's where I got involved. And my professional background has been in nonprofit advocacy. So that's uh, the kind of arm that I work on. That's amazing. Okay, we need to take a quick break, and then we're going to be right back. And this one is called Let's Not by Shadowbox. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Ronnie Sue's Chocolates, the New York confectioner where chocolate begins at the source. Ronnie Sue's own direct trade chocolate is handcrafted in Belize, made with organic Mayan cacao. We're making the, the chocolate down there, bean to bar, and we employ several folks, local folks that have learned the craft of chocolate making, and uh, we actually have a factory in Belize. Um, when I say factory, I mean it's like this big. Kind of like, you know, Heritage Radio. <laughs> We're almost in a shipping container. Ronnie Sue loves to geek out about chocolate. Come to her atelier on the Lower East Side and get schooled. Sign up for a hands-on make-and-take chocolate truffle class and let Ronnie Sue show you how it's done. Stop by to watch the action in their open production kitchen and enjoy a few chocolates in the secret backyard garden. Take some confections home or shop online at roni-sue.com. And we're back. You're listening to Magnifico Radio, and I'm your host, Kate Black. And today I'm joined by Crystal Moody and Jess Daniels, and we're talking about fiber shedding. So, Jess, you were just talking about how your history kind of brought you through agro through ag into um, fashion and fibers. But can we talk a little bit about carbon farming, what it is and, and how it ties into to kind of the health of the planet, but also makes this connection with fashion? Sure. Well, fiber shed, um, as I mentioned, supports re- regional and regenerative fiber systems. And from the get-go, we've been looking at fiber from a soil-to-soil perspective. So um, people might be familiar with a closed-loop system and making sure that whatever outputs come out of a fiber system can be inputs into that same system in a healthy and sustainable way. Carbon farming kind of takes it to the next level, looking at starting at the soil and um, looking at the amount of soil carbon and getting baseline data for what's in the soil and and then uh, working in concert with natural systems to increase the soil carbon and the health of the soil and actually draw down carbon from the atmosphere. So it's a a series, a suite of practices uh, that ranchers and farmers can work with that are similar in some ways to conservation farming methods that many farmers have been doing for a long time to uh, work with the health of their land and um, protect the species in their region. Um, But carbon farming works with those and improves that and to really support the facilitation and the drawdown of soil carbon. And so is there something in particular, like is there something, is there like a strategy that kind of is part one of what farms, like when they start to realize that they they maybe need to feed the soil or go back to kind of soil health? Is there something that is kind of generic that everybody starts with? Definitely starts with, as I mentioned, the um, 
carbon on the farm, looking at the carbon cycle and taking a systems approach. We work with uh, regenerative, or, sorry, um, <laughs> we work with uh, scientists <laughs> who are coffee. <laughs> yeah, uh, who scientists who can create a carbon farm plan, and so that starts with getting that baseline soil data. So we have a citizen soil sampling protocol as a nonprofit. We put forth um, practices that farmers in the Northern California region can go out and take soil samples, and that helps get baseline measurements. And then uh, working with rangeland ecologists, that was the word I was looking for, uh, rangeland ecologists can create a plan that's custom to the farm and looks at where carbon is cycling. So when we think about the carbon cycle, we think about uh, photosynthesis, how plants take in carbon dioxide and that you know gets sequestered into their roots and into the soil. And uh, when we, as I mentioned, look at the soil-to-soil system, that um, forage that's being created from the soil is being eaten by animals or, you know, it's maybe plants that are being grown for fiber. So it's looking uh, holistically at the system and some of the practices that we're excited about are compost application because that's, we see a dramatic and measurable uh, increase in soil carbon that's brought down um, through applying compost just one time. It's so amazing because, we, you know, we talk, if you think about fashion, we talk about fashion victims and, and, you know, harmful fashion. And, like, there's just been this focus for quite a while on all the, the negative things. And this is, like, fiber shedding is one of, the, one of the systems, one of the few systems where it actually just continues to put inputs in that benefit, benefit the community, benefit the environment, you know, and you're both wearing things that I'm assuming came out of your local fiber shed and they're beautiful. <laughs> like, it, 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 there is no... Kind of negative side. So can you guys talk about climate beneficial wool? Yeah, so the idea behind climate beneficial wool is taking um, the, the practices from carbon farming and really integrating that into a fiber system, into a clothing system um, that just mentioned we call soil to soil. Um, so really it's, it's taking uh, from the soil, you're growing plants, you're growing uh, you're growing dyes, you're growing, um, you're providing the nutrients for sheep who also provide um, this wonderful fiber called wool that we as an industry use less than 2% today, which I think is terrible coming from a performance background. It's flame retardant, it's um, got amazing uh, thermal management, moisture management properties, it's got elasticity and crimp. This is just this wonderful fiber that can feed into the system and is so integral um, to what we're seeing for the future of fiber. Um, and looking at you know, moving that through a system as locally as possible um, and m- developing garments that are that are compostable, that could add to one of these carbon farming practices like compost application, which just mentioned um, earlier, it's, it's actually one of the highest carbon sequestration practices that a farm can do. Um, so we would like to build a system that can actually feed back to the farmer and feed back to that added value that these farmers are getting from carbon farming. Um, so the idea is at point of sale and with an added value at the purchase of the fiber, we're actually providing um, the financial resources for these farmers to continue to move in a direction of climate beneficial wool. And so if, if you think about it like a really small kind of 
beneficial system, then what's the what's the outplay for consumers? Like, will they only be buying local? And and how? Because I know that you guys are you con- connected with farmers markets, like some fiber sheds are. We do have uh, a, a farmers market that that we sell some products at, um, but the idea. We're, we're coming up with a few different economic models we'd like to see. It's not necessarily local. We do understand um, to make this accessible for everyone, there there might be some other economic modeling that we need to do. Um, but we have one program coming up that's really exciting. Um, and actually what I've been working on the last six months or our team has been working on called the Community Sourced Cloth. Um, and the idea behind that program is to provide artisans and cut and sew makers with material sourced from this climate beneficial wool cloth and aggregate the demand of everyone within a local geography or even you know some of our online followers or people that are really interested in seeing these systems be implemented and seeing um seeing funding go back to the carbon farming practices to see those spread as well. Um, We've created a cloth program that people can either buy some of the yardage themselves and and make beautiful items and we'll help share that to the world or um, they can just become a compost donor or they can become a tree donor to a a windbreak. It's another practice that our carbon, um, our climate beneficial wool rancher that we worked with, Lania, still is um, looking to implement in future years to continue to sequester that carbon. So people can engage whether if, if they know how to sew, if they don't know how to sew, just be a compost and tree donor, just be a part of it. And we're launching that November 19th. So that's one way we see as a way consumers can can really be a part of the supply chain and a part of seeing this this movement move forward. That's amazing. And I know that out, out of Canada, there's the Peggy Sue collection. Mm-hmm. So consumers can buy directly from her. So mm-hmm. she's using a, lo- um, a local fiber shed up in Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm. Are there other websites? Do you have a do you have a directory on the fiber shed website? We do. We have several directories. And uh, the one that you mentioned, Peggy Sue collection, is part of our affiliate program. So the Upper Canada Fiber Shed is their strategic geography and um, identified region and so they're listed in our affiliate directory for northern california we also have a fiber producers directory and an artisan directory and that includes descriptive information on what types of fiber people are producing what skills uh, textile artisans are offering to the community and through some of those producers they participate in the fiber shed marketplace which as crystal mentioned does go to farmers markets and things like that and i think when we think about um the bigger picture of how everyone can get involved, uh, we see a fiber shed as one facet of the solution. And so when you're looking at your wardrobe holistically and thinking about what to buy next and planning you know, for a next piece, you could turn to your backyard, to your fiber shed, to uh, invest in a piece that has that depth of transparency down to the soil and invest in local economies and local producers. But that's also part of your wardrobe, and we recognize that you know there are things For instance, some regions, you know, don't have um, wool that might be next to skin soft. It might be more suited for an outerwear garment or there isn't cotton in every region and things like that. So, you know, perhaps in the future we'll see something proliferate almost like a fair trade program within fiber sheds. Um, And I think the Peggy Sue collection did a beautiful job of showcasing that because I believe everything in the collection was North American sourced, but there were garments that were exclusively Upper Canada fiber shed. And so blending that... um, 
those materials and you know putting forth her vision. It's true. Yeah, it and, and back to the color, like there's no blues in there because everything mm-hmm. was alpaca, so everything is in natural kind of browns and rustic colors, which actually suits Canada. And, yeah. and like, I love it. Beautiful. So so we're at a stage yet where, where there's no fiber shed store. Like, and so it, it really is um, geographically specific. So if consumers wanted to get involved, they would go onto the website, they would look at the directory. If they were traveling, maybe making travel plans, they would look to see which fiber sheds, because some of them offer two right some of the there's oh, some yeah. opportunities to yep. actually go and learn and touch and feel mm-hmm. right um and then everything if they wanted to support fiber sheds directly they could buy or use the links from the website mm-hmm. and can you talk about any kind of upcoming events you're having are you planning anything yes our annual wool symposium is november 19th and that's in the Northern California Fiber Shed. It's always a, an event that I point out for people who are visiting, who want to sort of visit the Fiber Shed, in quotes. Um, we are kind of a dispersed organization in terms of how we're doing the work, but the Wool Symposium is a time when the community comes together, when um, the fiber producers and artisans are selling things direct through a marketplace. We have panels and presentations on a whole host of um, areas and issues and this year the theme is for the love of place so i think it also speaks to um the broader ideas that we're talking about of if you're not in northern california what you can do in your home community and it is live streaming online as well so you can find that on our website and on november 19th you'll be able to tune in from anywhere in the world with an internet connection there's actually another um event that we're hosting um the knit along that you're launching at the event and that's another way that that anyone could really be in involved in, right? Right. So that's a project we haven't talked a ton about online yet, but we're really excited about putting together our first knit along, which is a way for people to knit something in community with others. And we'll be talking about it at the symposium, but the idea is that um, anywhere in the world, you could go out and meet a fiber producer in your region, you know, go to a farmer's market to buy some local fiber, contact someone, um, a farmer, maybe go out and buy yarn directly. Um, anything like that, and then work with that fiber to create a knit piece, hand knitting, um, and it's a shawl pattern, so it's kind of a um, you know low bar in terms of it's not going to be a ton of yarn, it's not a huge skill set like making a whole sweater, but it offers that connection to embracing what you have locally in your fiber shed and then having something to wear that's beautiful and reminds you of that. It's so, it's so great because it's really one of the ways that food kind of started to develop once mm-hmm. we started to take back cooking and, and, you know, making and, and doing things in our own kitchen, we started to have this deeper connection. And so I feel that that's totally necessary for fashion. And so for the Wool Symposium, um, Crystal, what about big brands? Like what, how do, if there's designers or people who work for, you know, industry, how can they get involved? Like how can they support Fibershed or how can they bring Fibershed into the brand? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's really my role as materials manager. If if there's a big brand interested out there that wants to get involved, please contact me, materials manager at fibershed.com. <laughs> um, I've been engaging with quite a few brands that are interested in this movement and exploring the idea and what that means to them. I think to every brand, it can mean something a little bit different. Uh, what I'm finding is there's a, a lot of 
um, education about wool and wool fiber that needs to happen both at the consumer level and at the brand level. There aren't a lot of brands that are using wool today um, and understand the benefits of it and understand the nuances um, behind the processing. And so I'm here and that's really part of my role to, to help figure out what is a way that these brands could help directly support or create a program um, that's using climate beneficial wool. Um, yeah, and, and actually the Wool Symposium is, is a great place if you are or can make it out to Point Reyes Station in Northern California. I think that's how I ended up getting a lot more people at the North Face really involved in the movement was, hey, let's let's go get on the ground and, and see what's happening, this this upswell um, that's happening in our area. You get to meet the producer, the artisan, all these people that are so excited and and so passionate about this movement moving forward. I think it's easy to see that in food and fiber. It's just really starting to, to show up, and it's so great to have that event um, in our in our backyard to be able to see. That's amazing. And Jess, if there are fiber producers in North America or actually anywhere listening, they can contact you. Yes. My email is office at fibershed.com. So original. <laughs> office. And what's yours again, Crystal? Materials manager. Okay. So mm-hmm. office or materials manager at fibershed.com. I'm so thrilled you guys came. Thank you so much for making the trek from California to New York. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to Crystal Moody and Jess Daniels of the Fiber Shed. If you want more information, you should go to to Fibershed, F-I-B-E-R-S-H-E-D.com. I want to thank Roberta's, which is home of the radio, Heritage Radio Network, where you can find me each Monday live at 1 o'clock. You can always listen to Magnifico Radio on iTunes or Stitcher. And check out our blog or sign up for our newsletter at Magnifico.com for more information. If you have any questions about it, we now have an uh, email ourselves. So radio at Magnifico.com. Want to suggest a panelist or have some questions, let me know. And until next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.